This is Jessica Ortner, and I'll soon be joined by my brother Nick. Our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going through a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Welcome back to Adventures in Happiness. It's Jessica Ortner here, and you are listening to part two of my interview with Pete Holmes. We split it into two to make it more convenient. I hope you're having a good time, getting some aha moments, and enjoy. This is the rest of it. On the topic of um, just comedy and laughter, there's I have a lot of embarrassing stories that my brother has been telling me forever that I need to share, which are so irrelevant. I mean, they're just embarrassing stories, but I've started to share them on the podcast. Yeah. It's like, you know, a llama spitting in my mouth, like literally a llama spit inside of my mouth, <laughs> like things like that. So the thing is, I find that I, I, I think I'm a very courageous person. I, I take risks. My humor is like my safety blanket. Like when things go wrong, I'm able to laugh and suddenly I don't. It's, I'm not really even embarrassed anymore. I don't mm-hmm. care that I didn't do something right because I see the humor. It seems like laughter, there's so much, it, there's um, a real healing element to it and a real kind of comfort that it gives you within your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is we take life too seriously and mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we, we, I don't think we give ourselves enough opportunities to allow ourselves to laugh at the woman kicking the bottle cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had more of them. Isn't that funny that that woman kicking the bottle cap has become like a favorite story of <laughs> And it was just because I chose to be in that moment. Uh, there's a, I learned this from Mark Maron. I don't know if it's his, I don't think it is his quote, uh, but he said it, um, quoting someone else, was that like we become comedians not to stop people from laughing at us, but to control why they're laughing at us. So a llama spits in your mouth and you have two choices. You can, you can be like, <laughs> and everyone laughs in spite of you. Or you can kind of control that and 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 make yeah. comments and and call yourself you know just oh just the llama spit <laughs> oh, drinker Jess, yeah and and then yeah. then you're kind of taking ownership of that and it's a it's a form of manipulation I suppose you're oh, so you're afraid of being humiliated so the cliche of the of the fat kid or or the or the strange looking person I mean why are there so many people so many comedians that grew up with embarrassing like that's when I tap I I realize it's still in there I'm like. Oh, I'm still so afraid of being humiliated, and I'm a person that said every single thought I've ever had publicly. Uh, there, there's very few things that I haven't shared with tens of thousands of people. Um, but behind that is still a kid that's like, I, I have these moles on my face. I, I'm, I, I'm like doughy and soft, and I'm not good at sports, and I misunderstand people so often. I, I sometimes I'm like, I don't think I do, and I don't mean to diminish it. I'm like, do I have some like? Asbergic sort of tendencies, and I honestly don't think I do, uh, and I only say that out of respect for people that do. Um, but like, my comedy comes from misunderstanding so much that that mm-hmm. sometimes one of the reasons why I don't smoke a lot of pot is because it kind of pushes me over the edge where I'm really afraid that whenever somebody says something, I, I see the five different ways you could take it. You right. know what I mean? And uh, that's kind of a lonely place to be. You want to live in that on that frequency where people just say things and you're like, I understand like a computer message received (laughs) and then you send one back and and then you both eat club sandwiches, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You kind of blew my mind with that, with that idea that we 
make other people laugh to control it. So do you think, you know, when it comes to comedians, there's a lot of tragedy as as well. You can also say that about people in general. Yeah. So I don't even know if it's if it's comedians, but do you do you feel like the people that are using um, laughter, can you tell where it's coming from? And do you feel like it always comes from a, a bit of a dark place in the beginning that leads you to standing up in front of people telling jokes? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it doesn't mean it's not true to, that it's a cliche, the sad clown sort of thing. Um, but yeah, for me, and I can only really speak for me, at the people that I know quite well, I, I would also say there's usually some sort of thing that went wrong or yeah. bothered like who, them. Like who's like didn't go wrong? At some well, point? you say there's a lot of pain and the, there's a lot of pain for everybody. And I'm like, maybe the comedian, that's the way that they, they dealt with it. Yeah. Some people might uh, go skeet shooting or, or, or jog or something. And the thing, the way that I feel after a set is I, I would put, hold it up against, uh, you know, like a upper drug user or, or somebody that just finished a jog or somebody that just finished a painting or got a promotion or something it's the same sort of surge of self-love where you're like, I have been seen. I have been affirmed. And that's why bombing is so painful. It's like, I was not seen. I was not affirmed. And, and that's the risk you run by doing uh, stand-up. But, uh, you know, for me, it, it had a lot to do with not feeling like I was listened uh, to as a, as a kid. You know, the pop-up here, my therapist calls them pop-ups, these qualifying statements. I want to point out that my parents were loving and yeah. that they did listen to me and they did, they did the best they could. But, you know, for better or worse, I go into a party, going back to parties, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. The The clear-cut, I talk, you laugh of stand-up is very calming to me. And uh, so that that is a that is a type of uh, pain for sure. Not Not being seen, not feeling like, it also comes from being seen too much. Like I think you need both. You need an overloving mother in a lot of cases and a distant father. Uh, and this comes up a lot on the podcast. That's the combination for an artist. Uh, Bono said you need an overloving mother or an angelic mother who dies and an abusive father. Or he says, or an abusive father. And he goes, if you're lucky like me, you had both. And that comes up a lot with uh, stand-up. So it's not just pain. So the pain, why doesn't dad... Um, know this or this or this about me? Why can't my dad name five of my friends uh, as a little boy or whatever? And then uh, you go, then your mom is at the same time uh, giving you a standing ovation because you made a bowel movement and you're, and you're 18 years old. You know what I mean? You get both. So you're kind of tapped into these two different dysfunctions, both pretty dysfunctional. I think people might reel at that saying like, how could you get too much love? But you kind of get hooked on this idea, everybody should love me, everything I say is valid, everything I say is funny, everything I say is interesting, uh, and that puts you up uh, here, and then you have uh, a dad or somebody that's like, why Why doesn't he listen, why doesn't he know? So then you have both, and then somewhere in between you try and manipulate audiences to give you what you're looking for, which is winning over the non-listeners and also embracing the mom energy as well, the people that are just like in love with you. The, so you interview a lot of successful comics, uh, you know, and a lot of actors and things. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just, my cell phone's going off. This is like the, I'm breaking all the rules. I no, speak okay. to you before I start recording. Oh, it's my brother. Um, <laughs> he wants to know how it went. You should. It's going fine. <laughs> Stop trying to take over my, the spotlight. No. Um, so you're, you're interviewing so many successful people. Do you notice any traits between someone who is being seen and is successful and seems to have 
a great state of mental health? Like, are there any kind of personality traits or ways that they think that make them different? People that are successful and well-balanced? Yeah. So if they're successful and you're like, oh, yeah, that person's very successful and they're well-balanced. I mm. mean, do you find one? Do you find them in L.A.? Um, <laughs> and if if there's people that you go, yeah, they're doing pretty well, are there certain traits that you think that they're – that they have that have been able to help them deal with their success when other people might have turned to unhealthy behaviors? Well, you know, it really does. I think everything goes back to self-love and it really does go back to that EFT sort of deeply and completely accepting yourself. So there are these facets of our personality. We, when you watch a movie or, or you have a dream, uh, the reason they're so appealing is you're every character in the dream. You know, you're every character in the movie. It's such a cliche, but like you're the ambitious, crazy, tough guy. You're the sweet guy, and you're the this one. The, the, so the people that I've seen that are balanced and that are also successful are not resisting. They're not pushing against the facet of their personality that is incredibly driven. I like to get the sweetie peeties uh, on the show. I didn't mean to use my own name, but like the the cutie guys to come on that are just like, I just stumbled into stand-up. I just told jokes. I'm like, come clean. I'm not saying you, you cut throats or stabbed backs, but you were hard on yourself. There's yeah. a perfectionist in me as well that goes, I want this next hour to be better. I want this next hour to be at this network and not this network. I want to write the perfect script. I'm going to lock myself in a room and write. So like you have to say yes to each facet of your personality. One, you can be sweet and you can be tenacious. That's the same person. That's this non-dual thinking that I think really helps people. Instead of pushing against and being like, I'm not the kind of person that would like really work hard to get that part. Yes, you are. And you're a sweet person. It's okay. You're playing the game. And that, that I, I see as, as a, a trait for like sure. Stop fixing, start accepting. Yeah, don't, don't resist it. It's okay. It's like don't, don't hurt people, yes, including yourself. But it's okay at some times to be, you know, again, to bring up TJ, I remember something he said to me that really inspired me was he, he was talking about being on an elliptical and he was like, I, I wasn't, uh, he was like, I was listening to music and thinking abstractly about my career. What a great thing to say. What a, what a nice thing. I'd say admit, but I don't think it's really an admission. It's just kind of like, yeah, I take time to think about where I am, where I want to be, where I want to be after that. It's not. It doesn't have to be all vision. It's not for me. Vision boards and, and really trying, what's it going to feel like when I have a Tesla? It's not that, but it is a very deliberate, like, this is what I'm about. It's almost like a corporate mission statement. I sometimes joke that I'm like a Republican of comedy, meaning I'm very like, no, you shouldn't go on stage high. You're a fucking idiot. Don't go, don't drink before your show either. Deliver. Firm handshakes. Uh, settle up promptly after. Say thank you for having me. The show starts when you get there. Be kind. Get get an opener that you believe in and help that person because you got helped by this person and keep the whole machine moving. But like, take it seriously. As much as I just go on stage and yell words that rhyme and do silly, <laughs> silly jokes about magic, I'm I'm also there's there's this weird sort of Michael Douglas character in there that's smoking a cigar in the back of a Wall Street bar that's like, I think it's time to go to Comedy Central with the new album. You know what I mean? That's fine. Which one is me? They're all me. And insanity comes from like pushing against too many things. Or I I, I can't really not true insanity, but I think like run of the mill everyday insanity is people's trying to Stressing say like, out. no, I'm just a quiet church lady. I'm just the person that volunteers at the library. And it's like, yes, you are, Roberta, but you're also 
this person that X, Y, Z. Right. What does really juice you? Like if you, obviously it's important to have like present moment experiences, but if you are on the elliptical, which doesn't look like it's been used very much. <laughs> I used it yesterday. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, I know. Well, I don't dust it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't. Uh, <laughs> so yesterday when you're on the elliptical and you're, and you are thinking about the future, what, what juices you? Like, do you have a thought or something that you would want to do or want to feel. And again, this is also the trap that we can kind of create for ourselves. But is there something that just kind of juices you when you think about it? Yeah, it's it's helping people, helping my and thereby helping myself understand, cope with, and merge with uh, reality and consciousness. I, that's what really juices me. And even if it's in stand-up where it's just an undercurrent, uh, I think if you look at the when I look at the undercurrents of the things I'm saying in my stand-up, which honestly isn't that deliberate, but then when I look at it sometimes as a piece, I'm like, oh, that bit is about loving yourself. Oh, that bit is about uh, embracing the absurdity. This bit is about loving your neighbor. This bit is about finding joy. This bit is about finding wonder. This bit is about admitting faults and being honest. So there's that. But these days, I'm trying to write a book. I'm trying to, uh, I'm doing this tour with Rob Bell. When is this coming out? Next week. That kind of helps. Yeah, that'll help us for Tampa, Orlando, and Boston. Wait, in two – sorry, two weeks. Not not this next week, the week after. It'll help us for Boston. <laughs> Come on, Boston. Uh, I'll, po- I'll post. I'll let people know about uh, – I'll, t- I'll tell them the show's coming and I'll – put links. I don't know if that'll help. Well, no, no, it's fine. I appreciate that. But Rob, Rob Bell, who's an author and a pastor, uh, but in the good way, uh, do a a tour that's about consciousness, basically. It's about reality and joy and wonder and honesty. I really like that. The more I'm driving just straight into traffic as opposed to just watching it go by, I think that's really uh, juicing me up these days. That's what's getting me up at five in the morning and writing things down and, and having conversations like this. That to me is really interesting. When I was a kid, I remember I was like, why aren't we all pastors? Why aren't we all priests? Why aren't we all devoting our life to understanding what life is? And I'm, I just happen to be one of those people that trips out on going like, what is this? What is this? Like, it's so not, you're always like that. It's not, I'm not, I'm not over it. Yeah. I'm not like, oh, this is carbon. And it, to me, I've said this before, but that is, that's just counting snowflakes. We're on the snow globe and we're going, well, there's 3,000 snowflakes. I'm like, why are there snowflakes? <laughs> why did those atoms choose to become a snowflake? And why does my body remember to be me every seven years as it regenerates and all this sort of stuff? But why do you ask the question to find an answer? Uh, I ask the question because I want to remember that we don't know. Like people yeah. are walking around like we don't know. Uh, the Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment talks about what what are we doing acting like this is real? Like we all just kind of accept it's real and we can divide it and we can rebuild it and we can uh, dis- disassemble it and then we can rebuild it again. And now we get it. I'm like, no, man, I think it's so cute that, we're, that we get it and we don't get it. And I benefit from science. I have an iPhone. We're talking to a MacBook and there's a dusty elliptical. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to distance myself or resist uh, the beautiful scientific approach. But I'm also just kind of a guy that's like, what? what is fire? What is that? What? What is this? And you can tell me it's a reaction of this, this, and this. And I, I'll still, I'm still able There's to still wonder there. trip out on the yeah. fact that it's a thing. So you've always, you've always been like that. You remember as a kid asking yourself those Well, questions. so my childish, yes, absolutely. And my childish interpretation was we should all be in the church. We should all be preaching and, and teaching. And then I realized that that... It, there's a great Richard Rohr quote from the podcast. He says that mystery is not that which is unknowable, but mystery is that which is infinitely knowable. Meaning, 
each one takes you to the next place. You can start in the church or you can end in the church. I, I don't care where religion comes in. It can never come in. But it's always that idea of going to the next thing, the next way of understanding things. So when I was a kid, I was like, we should be pastors. And now I'm kind of like, no, we should just be having conversations that uh, and notes from the universe that put us in the moment, that connect us to to love and awareness and transcendence. And and because in that place we're staring at curtains, and in that place we're not turning on white noise machines, in that place we're laughing at bottle cap lady, and in that place we're making love. We're not fucking. We're making love. You can fuck while you're making love. But you know what I mean? Those mo- those peak experiences, that real, the stuff you're going to remember on your deathbed, uh, the, that really moves you, where you're really witnessing the absurd profundity of the universe and and our existence. That's what I'd like to increase, and I'd like to decrease people postponing their happiness to some sort of afterlife reward or judgment. Uh, I'd like to decrease pain and fear and hatred and pettiness and disconnection. And I really think that's what uh, love is connection, and I think fear is disconnection. And I want to increase connection. I want to see you and me. I want you to see me and you. I want uh, I want to open my heart to to the world and to life and not for any sort of acclaim or because like I said we're all it's all it's all burning <laughs> <laughs> we're all gonna be dead soon yeah, yeah but I mean I the passion started because I was like because we need to go to heaven and now you know I, I depending on where you're listening to this from I've either matured or regressed into a place where I'm not uh, concerned about some sort of afterlife insurance as I'm concerned with experiencing what this is, what what we've been sent here to do and to be uh, and not worry about the rest. It seems like with laughter, it's so much easier to get across to people to, to share a message. It's like laughter breaks down barriers. It sure does. I mean, any any good cheesy pastor will open with a joke. Any good public speaker will open with a joke. Right. There's something, it's evolutionary. It's It's a way of being an alpha. You, you go like, I'm the one you should listen to. Look, I've just manipulated you. This is why guys are the hecklers, because they're on dates with women and, and you're manipulating the way her body feels. You're causing a, a chemical reaction in her body that's very similar to an orgasm. That's why it's guys are like, hey, fuck you. They're threatened by it. It's, not, it's, a, it's like a wolf herd, this guy's an enemy sort of thing. I, I don't know why people go on dates to comedy <laughs> shows if they're in that place, yeah, if yeah. they're in that sort of mindset. So they're usually men. It's interesting. For the most part, or yeah. there'll be like some blacked out girls just being stupid. Uh, <laughs> but um, shout out to those girls. Yeah, to the bachelorette parties. Don't go to comedy shows. Yeah, go to a strip club or just get drunk at home. Uh, <laughs> stop ruining my night. Stop ruining my livelihood. Uh, but what were we saying? You said that that laughter in oh. comedy breaks down barriers. Well, George Carlin, who I used to disagree with a lot because when I was religious, I was like, this guy's, you know, <laughs> to use a Scientology per- term, this is a suppressive person. <laughs> he's, he's against my worldview. And he said, though, uh, the moment after someone laughs is a great time to slip in an idea. And so, the, isn't that fun? Yeah. And I was like, that's why I like to think that if people come and see me do stand-up, I'll never really – sometimes I do say things just on the nose, but I'll never really just be like, love yourself or find wonder, find joy. This is it. This is all you have. Stop thinking about later. Stop thinking about before. This is it. Find it right now. 
If this were a dream, how fascinated would you be that your mind was generating all this? Be present. Be filled with wonder. Be happy, as silly as that sounds. But be light is a better way to put it. Stop beating yourself up. Stop beating up the world. Stop beating up other people. Stop resisting. I might not say any of that, but there's, and I do say some of that, but there's an undercurrent. And I, if people leave feeling entertained, first and foremost, but also a little bit edified, and I really don't like that word, but there's no better word, some sort of edifi- edification that you go like, I think I might be a little bit kinder to Carol, the croissant lady tomorrow. <laughs> or for me, it's an Uber. I call an Uber and they always call you and ask you where you are. And I'm like, motherfucker, I put it in. <laughs> I put so it true. in the app. <laughs> I'm so curt with them. I don't know why that is such a turnoff. I'm like, the appeal of the app is that I don't have to talk to you. Just come to the address that I entered. Maybe even me, if I listen to my own thing that I'm trying to share, I won't be, I'll just go, this phone call is the only thing that's happening. Why am I resisting this? Do you feel like your comedy got better when you began to be less attached to whether other people believed you or not? Believed me? Or, no, or believed in what you're saying. When I mean, you said before, which was so interesting, is if there is a heckler or someone being like, oh, love and accept yourself, you're like, yeah, dude, it's weird. Like, it's, you know what I mean? Like, you're almost not attached to right. whether they believe that idea. Well, I think what I would say is there's an, there's an idea when it comes to heckling that I'm like, it's our show. The heckle is is a part of the show. Resisting the heckler is uh, is a bad plan, uh, I think. But I try and do have that attitude of like, this is our show, this is our time. The Republican comes out. Well, the Republican would, would shut the heckler down, I think. <laughs> yeah. The Republican would say, you're robbing us of this time, and I will tell you to shut up, and I will tell the club to kick you out. And he's in there, Yeah. and I love him. But, but then there's also the guy that's like, often I'll be heckled, and you'll realize that they didn't even mean it the way you can. It's almost like hypnosis. You say something and someone's like, you suck. You can, you can say, then look at the joke you were just telling. What were you talking about? What could have happened? And then you can actually, it's almost like a benediction. You say it to the person. You go like, I understand. Maybe that joke's not for you. I understand. Maybe you had a really long day. Maybe you've been drinking. And you want the show to be good. We all want the show to be good. So I hear that. You might not say all this, but yeah. there's a way to kind of like diffuse it. That, that I see so many comedians turn people talking into hecklers. So someone's like responding in a way that my father responds in church when I was a kid. He'd talk back to the pastor. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, and then they will go aggressive and then that person will match that aggression in kind. And now you really do have a heckler. When if you had just tried to understand, if you tried to empathize with what is it like going to a comedy show? It's tense. It can be very tense. You're sitting there. You want it to be good. Now there's this weird guy you don't know yelling at you, talking about fucking mint-flavored floss or whatever it is. Maybe you're feeling threatened that he's making your girlfriend laugh. Maybe you're feeling threatened because you don't understand some of the words he's using. Maybe you feel left out. You know what I mean? If you can have empathy in that moment and try and realize that you and that heckler aren't necessarily enemies. What I think I meant with that question is that when we get really attached to, say, meditation or even me with tapping or any way of thinking, it's like the spirituality can go right back to that. It can become dogmatic very easily if we think that – Everybody has to believe in kindness, and if they don't, mm. then they're 
they're going to go to hell or something's going to go wrong. I mean, I guess I just reflect on my life when I decided that I didn't have to convince the world that tapping was effective. Oh, I see. I had a really, I'm having a lot more fun. That's great. I, you, that immediately reminds me, I, I started, I cut my teeth in New York at this club that doesn't exist anymore called the Boston Comedy Club. And it was really rough and tumble and it was really um, not great. Uh, but that's kind of where I got my chops. Like I was like, these people don't want to hear this, but I had to kind of insist. I'm grateful for that time. I remember Dimitri Martin came by, who's a very understated, subtle, one-linery kind of guy. And he was one of my favorites at the time. He still is. He goes up on stage and, and starts doing this. I'm like, what's, what's it? It's not going to work. These people are fucking idiots. There's only 15 of them. It's a Thursday. Uh, and he goes up and he starts doing his thing and some people are laughing, some people aren't laughing. And somebody doesn't heckle him, but somebody goes like, what? Or something like that, which is yeah. just as bad if you ask me. And I still remember he says like, I know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. And then he just kind of kept going. I was like, that's beautiful. Yeah, You're not for everybody. Trying to make everybody love you, this is a big thing on the podcast, is a, is a lie and it's it's manipulative. It's not fair to that person. You're not honoring their preferences. You're just trying to adapt and become what it is that, that you think they want to see. And that's really, there's no better word, that's really manipulative. And there is something really great about saying, I am not for everybody. And I'm not. Yeah. And that, and I don't have to be right. And maybe this isn't funny to you. There are things, I've laughed at terrible things before. I've laughed at stupid things. I've laughed at corny things. And that's that's all just my sense of humor. And maybe it wouldn't make this person laugh. And that's okay. My ex-father-in-law said something to me that I really love. He says, I don't know where he got this. He's not a comedian. And he said, when you go on stage, don't think of it as you're trying to manipulate them into laughing. Think of it as you're inviting them to laugh at what you laugh at. And I was like, oh, my God. It really is an invitation. Yeah. And I say that sometimes on stage. I go, I'm just inviting you to laugh at what I find funny. Some of you didn't RSVP. I get that. <laughs> and you're not going to join. And that's right. fine. But luckily, I'm at a point now where I can do a small theater or a club or something. And there'll be a couple hundred people there that know what I'm about and are into that sort of silly whatever it is. And we'll have a great time. Mm -hmm. But starting out, I mean, you're going to – every crowd, if you can make 30% of it, enjoy you. I mean, you did a really great job. And that's a bad F. <laughs> right. Oh, I can't even – the courage to stand up in a comedy club, that's just – that's courage. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. but I it mean, it's not like being in the military. But I, I think it's – because your brain, which is like – has that fight or flight response, is like I am standing up in front of people – yeah. Who could tear me down? Who can bring me down? It's funny I that you realize like that. There's yeah. a survival instinct that goes like, "This is terrifying," because now you're, you know, you're putting yourself on the chopping block. It's funny. It took me a long time to realize that that was something going on in your brain. Is that you think you're in physical danger, and you need to remind yourself that you're not. Yeah. Uh, and that's a real kind of mantra to repeat: is you're nothing. Something that I've said on the podcast that's meant something to other comedians that have heard it is, no matter what, how, like I'd be leaving for a college. And you have to do an hour. Typically, it would have to be clean. So there's no like cheating or just kind of giving them what they want. And uh, I'd be terrified. And I'd be in some hotel, some Holiday Inn in, in Fargo, North Dakota. And I'm just like, I'd be in the room. And as I'm about to walk out, I'd go, no matter what happens, in two hours, I'm going to be back in this hotel room. And that was just such a calming idea. Because you you really are uncovering. Right. The idea that you think you're going to be killed. 
totally. You think they're going to lunge at you. Do you know Louise Hay? She's like the Mm-mm. she's like the godmother of affirmations. She wrote she was one of the first people who wrote self-help books. She's just like a legend and she's in her 80s now. Mm. And I'm published by her publishing company and it's all spirituality and self-help books. Mm. And we had a speaking engagement. It was the first time that I spoke. It was about 800 people. The night before, I mean, I was I was terrified. I barely was breathing. The night before, Louise Hay, this legend, um, comes up and grabs a microphone and says, I want to talk to you about your speeches tomorrow. And so I was ready to, I don't know, for just some advice. And she said, all I want you to do is when you get off that stage, no matter how it went, just tell yourself you did, just tell yourself I did such a great job. And it's only getting better. Mm. And I thought it was such a beautiful thing that this woman who we're representing her, she's not giving us advice of like how to do it right. But the important moment is when you get off the stage mm-hmm. and to realize that you're safe, you did a good job. And when you you're in that again. state, yeah. yeah. It's funny, uh, Mike Birbiglia, who's a very dear friend of mine, had a movie called Sleepwalk With Me where he really addressed this idea that comedians are delusional. We could also say that comedians are good at affirmations, which is crazy because we think of them as alcoholics and negative people and suicidal and so many of us have died and I really do mean us like have died of substance abuse and sadness and all this stuff but we're also uh we can be incredibly positive and to the point where it, like a lot of people would hear what you just said and be like well that's delusional yeah it is it's absolutely functionally delusional and uh he said when you first do comedy for the first three to five years you have to get off stage having done badly and said, I think that went pretty well. <laughs> right. And that's exact. And you do that yeah. for a long, long time. If I'm really thinking about it, I didn't really like destroy. You know, you can do well, you can kill, and there's destroy and annihilate and all these things. And, uh, and then, of course, there's bomb at the other side of the spectrum. But I didn't annihilate until I had been doing it for 10 years, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you get these little glimpses, like literally like a out of 15 minutes you're doing, there might be seven seconds where you're like, my instincts were completely right. I waited that extra beat and that that line did 15 times better than it's ever done. And you literally have to go, I, I'm great. I'm really great. I got a little peek at my, my higher self. And I used to, speaking of being in the hotels before colleges, I've said this before too, but I've said most of the things that I say before. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, your your affirmation lady might enjoy this, I would uh, be in a hotel and this is, I've been doing it maybe five years. So I'm not good. You're not good in for a long time. I'm maybe arguably still not that, you know, you're not perfect. You're never perfect. Uh, but I'd be in the hotel room, I'd be getting ready and I'm very scared. And not only would I say... Uh, no matter what, I'll be back here in two hours, which was very comforting. I would also be, I'd be in the bathroom and I would do this every time. I would ask myself, it would like a fake interview with myself. And the question, I always pictured on like 2020 or something. And the question was always, what is it like being the greatest comedian in the world? And it, I didn't have to give like a dazzling answer. That would be another trap for myself. Right. Like if I answered it well, then I'm funny tonight. It was always just kind of like the same stuff. I was like, you know, it's great. I really appreciate the respect of my peers and 
being able to meet everybody I've always wanted to meet is great. It, it can be a little annoying. You know, I go to the mall and everybody wants to come up and say how great I am and get photographs and autographs and stuff. But, you know, for the most part, the fans are wonderful. Just like really a banal answer. It wasn't a mental exercise. It wasn't a creativity exercise. It was just to be like, what is it like being the greatest comedian in the world helped me be a better comedian that night. And I went up just with not, nobody wants cockiness. Nobody wants you to go up thinking you're the best comedian in the world. They, they want a little bit of vulnerability and humility, but it is kind of nice to go up and be like, I might be on the way to becoming one of the greatest comedians yeah. in the world. And, and there's nothing bad about allowing your, deluding yourself into right. thinking that. I love that. Okay, switching gears a little bit. What is something that uh, happened in your life that seemed like a horrible experience, but when you look back, was a really big blessing? Well, my divorce. I mean, anybody that knows me, that would be the answer. I think it's funny. It's my dad's birthday today, and I called him, and it's, I've been divorced for eight years, and he's he's still kind of like, you know, Peter. I, I look back and I think it might have been for the best. I'm like, <laughs> Dad, I realized it was for the best years ago, right. years and years ago. And because he, you know, people want to cl classify things, bad things and good things. Mm -hmm. And then we have so many movies where the bad things become the good things and right. the good things become the bad things. And that's blurring things into that gray place. But obviously, uh, I, the, the thing that was tragic about my divorce was that I thought, it was, I thought it was great. I was happy. I was happily married. Looking back at the time, I, I didn't know what intimacy was. I didn't know what honesty was. I didn't know what sex was. I didn't know what being a, a grown-up was. I should say, I would normally say man there, but let's leave gender normality out of it. But being a grown, empowered person, didn't know anything. Didn't know anything. Didn't know loss. Didn't know pain. Didn't know fear. Didn't know loneliness. Didn't know despair. Uh, it didn't have a leg to stand on when it came to uh, creating boundaries with my family or friends or for myself, loving myself, learning that I was all I needed, learning that I didn't need uh, a girlfriend to go to the movies or go to a dinner or get a massage or whatever it is. You can love yourself. You can treat yourself that way. I did get that from Tony Robbins. He was like, if you're single, do the thing that you would do with somebody else alone because you love yourself. That fucking blew my mind. And I did all that stuff because... Uh, that was my hero's journey. I'm obsessed with hero's journeys. And I always like saying in Star Wars, uh, you know, Luke wouldn't have gone on to meet Han Solo and Obi-Wan and Yoda if his aunt and uncle hadn't been murdered. You know what I mean? That's a terrible thing. He screams at both sons, you know, <laughs> both setting sons. He's a sad man. And then he's forced out of the nest. We're told the story every every movie is pretty much this idea that there's some sort of pain, there's an inciting incident, something is disrupted, something is bad, and you are sad. And then at the end, you realize that you wouldn't have left home without it. Odysseus wouldn't have left home if there wasn't a war. You know what I mean? Like, so it's this idea that we need these things. And, and for me, I, I couldn't be more grateful. And that's not denying ownership of some of the grief of love lost or whatever. Innocence is really a better way to put that. First love was the first person I slept with, first person I um, you know, dated for that long. First person I really dated, actually, now that I think about it. I dated people a little bit, but we dated for like a year and a half, then we got married. So uh, without that, I, I want to own the negative feelings and at the same time say that it was hands down the best and most important thing that ever happened to me. And I like being uh, vocal about that, not just to inspire people that might be going through something like that, 
there's part of me that like almost hopes that gets back to her that you know like completely forgive her and completely understand that's another level of empathy when you're like when you realize you're married to a, a beautiful bouncing baby boy but that isn't fulfilling to you it you don't have to hate someone to break up with them mm. you don't have to uh, build a case of why they're garbage um, if for, in her case she fell in love with somebody else and she saw what she wanted in somebody else uh, and I, I really empathize with that now. There's a great line in If You See Her Say Hello, the Bob Dylan song. It says, uh, if you see her, you know, say hello. And tell her, I always have respected her in doing what she did in getting free. And that's just such a challenging and beautiful line. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God, that's how. How long did it get you to get to that space? A while. I mean, yeah, there was a, I, I, <laughs> I'm skipping over what I would consider one of the best parts of the story, which was just being so sad and just uh, I felt like I was wearing that uh, lead jacket they give you to the dentist to keep right. the rays you're just heavy all the time and really just kind of disillusioned and very lonely really really lonely and uh, yeah there was, a, there was a lot of that I, I can't really give you a figure of how long it took because you can listen if you listen to the beginning of my podcast you can listen to a guy who's pretty okay with it Two three years later, being telling having having this conversation with you, so it certainly helped. So three years ago was uh, two thousand and twelve, mm -hmm. and I got divorced in two thousand and seven. So that's five years of kind of an ethereal in between place. Not sure how I feel coming to terms with it, at least to the point where I could talk about it more openly, and then three years of really in depth. Uh, analysis, meaning therapy, conversations, and then also just like other relationships, like learning, seeing yourself in other situations. I dated, I jokingly would call her a real loon, like a really kind of big person. <laughs> I dated a comedian that's still one of my best friends and seeing yourself in these different situations. And, and then you start to become more and more grateful. I wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. I mean... It's uh what advice would you give to someone who's get divorced? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have to be careful not to make it sound like I'm pro divorce as much as I'm pro uh shaking your own cage a little what bit. What I mean is say the divorce has happened or something has happened in someone's life, they are in the midst of it. They are in yeah. the, the sobbing fetal position on the ground and they're just kind of trying to get through their day. Yeah. What what's your advice? I mean, there's there's a the same thing we've been saying. I would say is like you need to don't identify with the depression and also don't resist it. Mm. Uh, again, Ramdas would say like there is a depression. You know what I mean? It's you're not the depression. You are experiencing what human beings and poets and authors and painters refer to as depression, as devastation, as isolation, mm. as uh, even feeling suicidal and uh, completely abandoned. And I, I obviously, when I said suicidal, I, when I say don't resist it, I don't mean kill yourself. <laughs> Let's but be clear about I, that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, for sure. But it's like there is a way to observe it mm. and don't identify with it. Meaning you're not the depression. You are in the midst of a thick, jello depression. And it looks like you'll never come out of it. And uh, and just say that that's what's happening. It's happening because my wife had sex with this other guy and left me. And 
I'm having a really hard time coping with that and allowing it and, and letting it uh, kind of burn you up and refine you. And then knowing through stories like this and countless others, Eat, Pray, Love is a great one, uh, which I haven't even read, but my uh, Val and I have talked about it so much that I feel like I understand that. Uh, know that it gets better, that there's a thing that will get better. And it might not be in the way that it got better for me. It might maybe you'll get back with this person. I have no idea what, what your uh, path is going to be. But great pain and great love are the only catalysts for change. That's beautiful. This is a this is a tough question. What's one book that really changed your life? That's not a tough question. That's a great oh, question. I you also know. you do know like does it pop up? Oh yeah, I'll go in order. Okay, okay. <laughs> go, go for it. As somebody that grew up religious and then uh, dabbled in atheism, I like to say I never really fully identify as as, as an atheist. I don't say that because I love atheists. Ninety nine percent of my friends are atheists. And I love them. Like I was talking about TJ's beautiful nihilism. Um, but I, I dabbled in it. I kind of, I, I literally would only allow myself like 20 minutes to be like, there's no God. And then I'd be <laughs> in that space just to see if I'd survive, if the world wouldn't fall out of the sky. Um, and then came the time when I was like, how do I address this, uh, this yearning to understand reality? Uh, and, and is there even a way to hold on to some of the tropes and language that I grew up with, like Jesus and resurrection and grace and hope and peace and forgiveness and gentleness and kindness and compassion? Can I hold on to any of those? And I really was like, fuck all that. I don't even want to hear. If I if someone's like, I'll keep you accountable, I'd, I'd, I'd rather get stabbed in the neck. You know what I mean? Like I, I couldn't handle church speak. And then I uh, it started with a movie. There was a PBS special called The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell. Uh, which is amazing. And then there's a book, uh, which is actually the complete transcription of these conversations that Joseph Campbell, who is this big mythologist who talks about the power of myth. That's, that's what it's called. So he talks about, um, I read that, I watched that, and it really brought me back to the idea of myth. Myth, people used to say to me, the Bible is a myth. And I was like, I'd get offended because all I would hear is the Bible is not literally true. Then you could kind of open up into this world of the idea that Richard Rohr said literal truth is the lowest level of truth. It's like the base level of truth. Literal truth is the lowest level of truth. I have a box of note cards with all these things that I write down and I refer to them because they're, they're my notes from the universe. I need to remember literal truth is the lowest level of truth. And then you start to see that there are things that you can only tell through stories. Rob Bell, would, who's going to come up in this list as well, he, he says that sometimes you don't want a chemist, you want a poet. Sometimes you don't want uh, you know, an auditor, you, you want a symphony. And we can't quite touch it. So did Jesus literally live a sinless life? Was, it, was there a virgin birth? Was there a physical death and resurrection? Did he come back from the grave? Or is it a story that we are all to go on that hero's journey, that you are to die to your lower self, your ego, your humanity in the bad way. You're just kind of base. I want a banana. Are you to die to that and then resurrect yourself to your divinity, to your unitive consciousness, to your God consciousness, uh, to that collective world? Is it a story that's literally true or is it a, is it a metaphor? I personally lean more towards who gives a shit. Uh, I, I'll join you right there if you want to tell me that the idea of a virgin birth is in 5,000 other religions and resurrection is in all these other... I loved, I loved religious. I don't have any problem with that. Great. But let's not throw away 
the essence. It's that that old idea of, you know, people are worshiping the finger instead of the fingers pointing at the moon. I'm sure you've heard that. So what are we pointing at? What is the Christ story about? What is the Buddha story about? All the Buddhas that came before Siddhartha, nobody burdened them with literal truth. There was no looking for the landmark where they were born. There was no trying to find firsthand accounts. This is all that Western sort of like, let's write it down, let's transcribe it, let's photograph it, let's share it. It'll go viral, then it's real. But then there are things that are real that come from lies, (laughs) quote-unquote lies. I used to struggle with the idea of whether or not I would teach my kids about Santa Claus. And now I'm like, no, I'm going to teach them about Santa Claus. My friend was like, I don't teach them. This is somebody I barely know. I say friend, but you know what I mean? They don't uh, celebrate Christmas. On Christmas, they make their kids a birthday cake for Jesus. Why? Because when they told the kids that Santa Claus wasn't literally real, they said, oh, like Jesus. And I think they should have said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not to diminish Christ as perhaps a literal, historical, enlightened person who lived and died in the ways described in the Gospels. Uh, Not to diminish that, but to say that there are things that can only be known by not looking directly at them. You know what I mean? It's it's, It's like a deer in the room, and if you stare at it, it runs away. But if you look at it in your periphery, maybe you'll get a glimpse at it. So here comes Joseph Campbell. So you can't teach your kids about good good works being rewarded or the idea that there's uh, something outside of yourself. But you can teach them about a guy named Santa Claus who loves the Coca-Cola beverage. So here comes Joseph Campbell who says Christ is a metaphor and that's not to take away from him. That's to empower him. That's what it's supposed to be. Uh, and then he says, read other religions because you will read them without the burden of literal truth. And then you have a chance of actually getting it. When we started looking at Genesis as a scientific textbook, that the world was created in the literal six days, it just, it just breaks my heart. But then, you know what? That's judging that. That's fine. That's, that's what I would consider a gateway God. That's the beginning. Mm. It, it plants this idea, plants this curiosity, and maybe it leads you to the next thing. Not a better thing, but just the next thing, the next level of understanding that you're intended to come, come to. So power of myth would be number one. That, that saved all relig- religions for me. Um, and then after that would be Love Wins, which is by Rob, Rob Bell. And Love Wins is, is, uh, kind of rethinking what we think about sin and judgment and hell. A lot of people would, uh, reduce that book to there is no hell. It's a pastor saying there's no hell. Uh, I think it's, it's far deeper than that and, and way harder to summarize, but he sure did get a lot of flack because people love their hell. And people want their judgment and they want to, you know, pedophiles and Hitler and we want people burning eternally in a conscious living torment. Um, but here's a book that says God is really telling you he's always with you and everything you ha- he has is yours. And this idea of separation, that there are things that you can do that displease this thing or upset this thing, you know, that's really anthropomorphizing God into a man who's like, I told you to stay off my lawn. You know what I mean? The, <laughs> the bully God who has the velvet rope that either lets you in the nightclub or doesn't. All that shit has to go. Because the way that we've homogenized and pasteurized and reduced the Christian message into afterlife insurance, we're robbing ourselves of an incredibly compelling mystic tradition, as a lot as they all are almost, pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Maybe not to me, but to somebody. 
So this is all babies and bathwater. You know, we're trying to, what is true, what is worth holding on to. I, I have no patience for God said it, I believe it, that does it. That's fucking horseshit. It's not good for me. It might work for you, it's not for me. It also doesn't work for me when you said you didn't, Jess, you didn't say the magic prayer and you die and you're going to burn forever. Even though you devoted your life to Krishna, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? That's also great. So love wins was a great relief for me for that. Uh, and then moving forward, it would be um, Falling Upward by Richard Rohr, which we've referenced several times, which is just about maturity. It's about the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell is also, also about the hero's journey. And then uh, then a lot of them are like lectures and stuff. I, I think... Do you listen to podcasts? Not really podcasts, but like, uh, you know, this is different because you're letting me talk so much. Um, I find even my own podcast, I'm like, stop interrupting it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, no, but they're they're brilliant. You also get somewhere you wouldn't have gotten if you hadn't been interrupting them. You know yeah. what I mean? It becomes this third thing. It becomes a conversation. It's not an interview. It's a podcast. So I get that. But sometimes that frustrates me listening to other people's podcasts, which is funny because I get so much shit for that myself. But like if you – there's a couple movies on uh, Netflix like Deepak Chopra giving talks and stuff I find very, very interesting. And then the thing that's so clearly blowing my mind lately because I plagiarized a good third of it during this uh, podcast is uh, Ram Dass' Experiments in Truth, uh, which I would also include Be Here Now on the list of books that really blew my mind because the, the that's that sort of uh, unitive consciousness. This is a guy writing about Jesus. This is a guy by writing about Buddha. This is a guy writing about uh, Muhammad and Krishna. And you're just like, what is going on here? Because the dual dualistic mind wants to separate these things and say, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a male. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm a straight male. We love that stuff. That's why racism is popular, because it's so calming to your mind to go, I'm a white male, that's a black male, he might rob me, or whatever it is, because your brain delights in that certainty. And then in, enter the mystic, who says it's both, it's yes, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. And you go like, but that doesn't make sense. Great, we're not building a calculator. <laughs> we're trying to understand the nature of reality. And if you're going to stay in that space, you're not going to see it. And a lot of us, you know, like I said, sometimes you tap and you see the curtains and sometimes you drink vodka and you go to bed. It's all part of it, though. Yeah. That that judgment and all that sort of stuff really isn't going to help you anyway. You eat the quesadilla. You tell yourself you love yourself. <laughs> I just have a few more questions. Um, if you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? That's a good one. I love the water. I really do. So I'm thinking, like, I feel like a hippopotamus. Like, I'm lazy. <laughs> going to say like dolphin no no <laughs> dolphin would be pretty good that's a good answer you talked about being down at the beach and seeing rob and i surf uh we used to surf helmets once a week we've both gotten busier but paddle boarding and stuff would see whales and would see dolphins i i think i would love to you know the the ocean is so scary although i wonder if they look at the surface and they're like they're so scary wasn't there's so many things to kill you <laughs> of course you start going to sharks and stuff but uh Something that can swim, like a dolphin, I think would is, is a you great can go answer. With hippopotamus. The reason I like hippopotamus is I think I am like a hippopotamus. I take a lot of naps. I like to take it easy. Uh, they're ferocious, though. They'll fucking yeah. kill you. So I don't. I, I don't really like that part. But <laughs> maybe they're looking at humans, and and we kill each other all the time too. But something in the water. I love. The water. I love the feeling of flight that you get from swimming. I will swim 
for hours or, or free dive or something like that. It's just, I only surf for the moments that I fall off because then I'm just kind of floating. So poetic. <laughs> I know that did sound poetic, but I'm terrible at surfing. I really, I just fall. I, I'll stand up for maybe five seconds. And you, you keep going back. To surf? Yeah. You mean I'll get up and keep surfing that day? No, what I'm saying is you go back to surf. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I love hearing somebody that's bad at something. I'm terrible at it. just keeps doing it because they enjoy it. A lot of times people don't let themselves enjoy something unless they're good at it. Oh, I've never even lost my temper surfing. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, but that's the beautiful. I, I say this on stage. I say this in the tour that Rob and I are doing. I say, when you fall, when you're surfing, you're just swimming. You're just doing another sport. Right. And there's something really. There is something kind of cosmic about that. Like you think you've fallen off course, but you're really just on a different course. You're just doing another thing. But you want everybody wants to go. I'm either surfing or I'm not. And that's where you get the guy having the panic attack. That's like I can't surf. It's okay. You're you're still in the water. It's it, it's still beautiful out, and, and there, there's a surrendering to that. But I'm real bad. But I, I just like sitting on boards and having conversations like this. Yeah, well, I love this. So, tell us more about uh, your upcoming shows. Where people can find you. All the good stuff. The thing that I really want to promote, which is really the only tour date I have coming up that's uh, like on sale right now. The the quick answer is PeteHolmes.com. I don't Which still says that you're a New York based comic, by the way. You mean when you Google Pete Holmes, yeah. it'll say that? Yeah, that, I, I gotta I gotta figure out how to change that. But then you click on the website, I think it doesn't it doesn't say that on the website. I'm not sure. And Wikipedia it says LA. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, but I remember filling that in because I was so proud to be a New York based comic. Yeah. <laughs> so I put that in the bio. Um Pedomes.com will have the date. So who knows when you're listening to this, but I should be around. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, Rob Bell and I, which really is that tour that I'm the most excited about, which is conversations like this. It is talking about Ram Dass and talking about uh, Richard Rohr and all that, and, and talking about Rob. He's there, who's amazing. Um, and it's also comedy. So it, it's not really 50-50, but there's comedy throughout and there's profundity throughout, and there's questions and answers. And it's, it, by the time that show is over, there's a membrane around the audience. We really all feel like we're in some sort of community. Atheists love it. Weirdo, uh, lunatic, new age people like me love it. So it's it really is for everybody. I say motherfucker. It's it's not church, you know. Right. What I mean? So go see the Together at Last tour. Listen to You Made It Weird. Um, if you like, like the reason we got in touch is because of that podcast. Yeah. I talk about tapping. I'm a proselytizer. I don't Thank keep you. it in. When I <laughs> when I like something, I tell people about it. That's why, you know, it doesn't always stick. It almost never does. Um, but someone's like, I can't sleep. I'm like, have you done EFT? I can't stop uh going to hand job massage parlors. Have you tried EFT? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's such a great thing. Yeah. And then I get really mad when I go, have you, t- uh, have you tried EFT? And they're like, oh, I do EFT every day. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? You know, like I, I, I feel so left out. Right. I'm not that Oh, way. when you mention it, I scream every time. I get so excited. So I started listening to the podcast about like a month and a half ago. And I've gotten, I think, a good solid 20 people hooked wow. since then. It's so good. And Thank you. What you're doing, you know, I was taking these long drives and, you know, I just moved here and it was hard to move cross country and like leave my family, leave my friends, new beginnings, a lot of time of unpacking, of discovering new places. And I've just been listening to You Made It Weird nonstop. And I think it's important to take time once in a while to recognize 
the difference that you make in people's lives yeah, that you. you probably don't, you know, not to get all, but you probably <laughs> don't realize that you're really impacting people's lives. And um, thank you. I really, really appreciate that. Really great. Luckily, uh, when, whenever I do a tour or something, I will do like a meet and greet. And sometimes it's like two hours long or whatever. People are like, wow, that was really big of you. And I'm like, it's mostly just people saying what a difference it's made. And, and also sometimes getting like suggestions for guests or books or whatever. So it's really the easiest thing in the world. Uh, but it is really nice to hear. I appreciate that. So listen to You Made It Weird. Yes. I'm trying to think of like Duncan Trussell is a great one. Uh, Deepak Chopra did it. Rob did it. Uh, a guy named Science Mike did it. One of my favorite episodes where he talks about he was a deacon and, and lost his faith. And like he he, re, he found it again, but in this really kind of interesting way, not a traditional way. And now he's like this ambassador of, of the countless number of clergy that don't believe what they're preaching, wow. which sounds so, oh my God. But it's like anybody in the church would be like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's always going to be days where you don't believe you don't the believe. Easter story and shit, it's Easter. You know? I always think about my parents. Like I'm the first generation to be able to have a career like I have now of doing everything online, all the podcasts I listen to. A lot of the information I consume is free. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great time to live. I mean, just my parents didn't have access to this. I know. Again, it's my father's birthday and I talked to him and I was like, I said, I was like, I think about the time that you came up. I always try to make my dad cry on his birthday, <laughs> like in the good way. And I was like, I think about it because I watched that Frank Sinatra documentary. And everything seemed so pinched and old and black and white. And people were like cutting chickens' heads off in their backyards. And their mothers looked like Andre the Giant, you know, just like <laughs> thick women, like taking a punch and yelling at like vagrants and hobos and train jumpers and all that stuff. And I was like, you came up that time. Uh, and I came up in the time that you're describing, which is like this place where we, we can be literally connected. You can consume so much more important knowledge than I ever learned in college that I ever learned in any school. Because literally I, on my podcast, we've done 200 blah, blah episodes, 250, maybe they're like two, three hours long. By this point, I've said everything valid, everything valuable that I've ever learned in college, high school and beyond. And it, so if you listen to that, you can just, Knowledge is theft. I think that's such a more compelling way to think about it. It's like, oh, I have to learn. No, you get to steal from me. You get to because knowledge is one of those things that you're it's you're allowed to curate it. Spirituality is the same thing. Comedy, you have to write your own stuff. It's actually the hardest thing I do. But when it comes to spiritual stuff or intellectual stuff, you can just steal other people's ideas. It's like shoplifting. That's great. So listen to some podcasts that our parents didn't have. I'm sure my dad was like 41 before he heard the word like dichotomy you know right, what I mean? right. he hadn't left somerville massachusetts yeah. by the time i was 18 just because of air travel and everything and the economy changing i mean i had i had been all over the world it's crazy and then and then intellectually we can all go into the cosmos together which is really a, a thing to be grateful for right well thanks for taking us there and for letting us steal all your yeah no amazing knowledge steal it just you know great. footnote me Definitely. <laughs> Tapping solution forward slash notes, and you can get a. I'll put your all your information there. Oh, that's great. Books. I appreciate it, Jess. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Tap on. Tap on.